You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't apart. Hello, and welcome to episode 185 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Laurie Norris and Katie Grubbs. Hey, Laurie and Katie. Hi. Hello. Before we get started with our discussion today, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Uh, Laurie, why don't you go first? Thanks. I am Laurie Norris. I am um, in Athens, Georgia, and have started working towards my dissertation again. So, yeah, but more importantly, everyone... I got a cat like a month ago, and she's the greatest thing in the entire world, and she's directly behind me right now, and she is very angry that I am interrupting her her sleep. So if I just suddenly disappear, it's because I had to go stare at her. It sounds like she's keeping you you uh, pretty busy. She is, and she's absolutely worth it. Lando is amazing. She's an incredibly <laughs> beautiful cat. I couldn't believe the pictures that you posted. Thanks, friend. Uh, Katie, what about you? Hi, I'm Katie Grubbs. I live in Leeds, Alabama with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast and our four children. Um, I am a an adjunct professor of English for Houston Christian University. We have changed our name in the last couple of months from Houston Baptist University to Houston Christian University. Same school, new name. Um, and... And uh, and I spend most of my time um, doing the mom thing uh, to our four kids, and that's great. And uh, we're really enjoying being back in the southeast. Um, we've been here for about 18 months. Before that, we were lots of other places. So it's really nice to be back in the place where we're from. Wonderful. Thank you. And uh, I am Alexis Neal. I uh, live in southwest Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, the political podcast of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. And uh, I mostly spend time with my two kids um, as a homeschool mom slash stay-at-home mom. I am uh, an attorney by training, and I also am an elected official for our city. Um, so that's been uh, eating up a lot of my time uh, this spring because we had to hire a new uh, city administrator. Um, and apparently hiring is not super easy right now, <laughs> which is news, I'm sure, to precisely no one. So I'm a little discombobulated because I'm recording at home instead of at my husband's office because they're forecasting hail and there's no covered parking at his office. So I apologize if I seem a little bit out of sorts, but I'm going to sip my uh, big old steaming mug of the closest thing I could find to bush tea and hope that that will uh, settle me down as we begin our discussion of Precious Ramotswe and the number one ladies detective agency. So um, we will start off as we typically do with our section on knowing. Um, and I'm just going to talk a little bit about the background of the number one ladies detective agency. Um, this is a series, uh, initially a series of mystery novels written by author Alexander McCall Smith. The novels follow the adventures of Ma Precious Ramotswe, Botswana's only lady detective. Uh, McCall Smith, though British, was raised in what is now Zimbabwe and actually helped found the law school at the University of Botswana. So he has spent some time um, in and near the regions he's writing about. Um, 23 novels have been published in this series, uh, spanning the period between 1998 and 2022. Uh, in 2007, production began on an adaptation initially contemplated possibly as a feature film and then over time morphed into maybe being a TV movie and ultimately became what functioned as a double length pilot for a short HBO series, uh, which lasted, unfortunately, only six episodes beyond that double length pilot. The show starred singer Jill Scott and Broadway great Anika Noni Rose as Precious Ramotswe and her secretary slash assistant detective Grace Makutsi, respectively. Uh, the show was actually filmed on location in Botswana, the first major production to have that, be able to make that claim. 
Um, so that's a little bit about the production. And in the pilot, just to give you an idea of the story, if you're not familiar with uh, Precious from Otsue, uh, we meet Precious in the, in the pilot. She is initially almost kind of a woman defined in large part by her relationships. She's the former wife of an abusive musician, mother to a child who died mere hours after birth as a result of said abuse, uh, and the daughter of a wealthy and influential cattle farmer. Um, but when her father dies, uh, leaving his modest fortune to her, she packs up and leaves village life, um, purchasing a house in the big city of Habarone and setting up as Botswana's only ladies detect lady detective. Uh, the rest of the series then follows her adventures and the mysteries that she tackles and solves, assisted by her secretary and later assistant detective, Mama Kutsi, um, mechanic and friend JLB Mataconi and others. Uh, so that's just a real up high view of uh, the the source material um, and then also of, of the show itself. Ladies, anything you'd like to add on the production slash background side of things before we start talking about our experiences with the show? Uh, for me, I think it's kind of important that we acknowledge up front that uh, while this really good show, show was shot in Botswana and is based on stories by someone from Botswana. Uh, it is made by a lot of white British guys and Harvey Weinstein. So um, if anybody has uh, some, some questions about how this particular podcast wants to talk about art from, from, Men who skeeve us out, I am going to direct you to an episode that I hosted on Joss Whedon. Because, uh, yeah, Harvey Weinstein, he's real gross. I, I was surprised by that because I had not watched it before, never seen it before the last about week watching to prepare. And it's pretty much the first thing you see um that comes up on the screen when you start watching through the the opening credits for each episode so i was a little bit surprised by that um but yeah i mean i think it's good to to acknowledge that right out the gate and i alexis i like that you pointed out that um mccall smith who wrote the novels did that that he was not botswana though he did live in botswana because that's the first thing i went looking for when i started watching the show and i knew it was based on books i wanted to know who wrote this and you know how how accurate is it or at least what how much does this person know is this person from this place or is this thing is this something where somebody's just done like a little bit of research and stuff so i like too that we talked a little bit about the author's background and and why he does have a lot of knowledge and or, and or why he might have been interested to pick this as a setting for his novels anyway. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I because it was such a short show, just, just the, you know, six episodes in a pilot. Um, and honestly, not one that is promote has been promoted a whole lot as part of HBO's catalog. Um, there's not been a ton written about it, um, but the little bit that I have read, I haven't heard anyone sort of come forward and with like a glaring critique of like, this is just totally gets everything wrong about Botswana or mischaracterizes anything. I haven't seen those kinds of critiques, and I, I, I would hope that we would have seen some of that if that was true, but we don't actually know that. Like, none of us have that expertise. So I did want to say before we, before we dive into our discussion um, of any of this material, um, since none of us are experts in Botswana history or culture, um, we're going to be commenting on the material as presented in the show. So to the extent that that does not match Botswana culture, we're not trying to comment on actual Botswana culture. Um, so, and if any of our listeners have information on the accuracy of this depiction of Botswana, its people, its culture, uh, please reach out to us. We're always excited to learn more. Um, but just we're going to be talking about what is presented in the show as it's presented in the show. No comment about its relationship to uh, reality um, at all. Um, with that, um, Katie, you mentioned that you had not seen this before prepping for this show, but I'm curious from both of you what exposure you had, if any, to uh, the novels or the show and what your impressions were. I, like I said, I hadn't seen it before. I had heard of the novel years ago um, and had heard that it was really good, but had never gotten around to um around to checking into it in part because I think the time uh, it was a few years after maybe the series came out that I first even had started hearing about the novels and that coincided with about the time that I started having children and my time for extra reading greatly diminished. So the number of novels that I've read um, in the last probably 10 years 
um, is a shockingly smaller amount than I used to read before, before we had kids. That being said, having watched the series, um, I, the, you know, the long pilot and then the series I watched this week to get ready, I hadn't, hadn't seen it either, but I absolutely now want, would really, I want to go back and start reading my way through the novels because having seen this, the, the kind of like those broader sketches of the story, or I know probably simplified versions of stories that appear in the novels, I would like now to have a lot more detail on these characters because I really enjoyed it. Um, anytime um, I get a chance to see a detective story set in a setting that's completely unfamiliar to me, that's always interesting. It's like when I read Agatha Christie's one mystery novel that's set in ancient Egypt, right? Like it's a familiar type of story, but in a totally different setting that I'm not familiar with. And that's kind of how I felt watching this show is that um, it's got these kind of broad contours of some things like cozy mysteries. But it's such an unfamiliar setting for me that it, it was exciting and, and, and a very different um, kind of feel. And I loved that in I think it's in the pilot, maybe in the first episode where some guy says to her, oh, like Mrs. Marple. <laughs> I love that part, like that kind of lampshading that this is a detective story, but it's not the kind that you're used to. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, I really remember. I, I remember that scene well, and it was it was a charming way to come into this series, because while I'm pretty sure I've seen the cover in a bookstore because it's it's quite striking, the the iconography and the original first editions. Um I had only ever encountered the TV show when on my cable on demand and scrolling through the list of HBO series to get to whatever it was that I was watching. And and I had a I don't know, I guess because I was only familiar with this as an HBO show, I assumed it would be much grittier. So I was very charmed by how ultimately sweet the the series was and if if the books are half as like clever and cozy and not as it's i'd be like not obsessed with murder like there's not that much violence that goes on so i'm like this is this could be my jam i i could get down with this yeah game of thrones it isn't right uh <laughs> <laughs> right um no that's true. And I, you know, I was thinking about this question and I genuinely cannot remember how I stumbled across the show because like I said, it's not, it doesn't show up on like the home screen of any of the streaming service services. Um, so I don't remember if like Amazon had it for a hot minute or, or what I had listened to, I think an audiobook of it years ago. Um, and so somehow heard about the show, was looking for the show, genuinely don't remember, watched it, loved it. Um, had a lot of questions about um, about the show and about its portrayal of Botswana. And we're um, my husband's coworker, actually, um, who teaches African history. Um, he, he and his family are from Ghana, which obviously is not the same as Botswana, but he also teaches African uh, history. And so I was interested both in what would be similar, what like what things might be similar from his experience in Ghana and how Botswana was depicted. And then also if he knew anything about Botswana. So we watched the pilot with them. Um, and they actually then went home and binged it before we got a chance to watch the next episode with them. Um, so they apparently really liked it. And then I also um, used it to pull out. It's always handy to have shows I can watch with my parents because the shows that they enjoy and the shows that we enjoy, like that Venn diagram doesn't have a whole lot of overlap. Um, and I thought that this would be a good one. And it was. They loved it, too. So um, I'm like going out and just trying to spread, you know, spread the word person by person. You should watch this show as long as HBO lets you. Um, you should watch this show because. Um, I really did love it. Like you said, Laurie, it's very, uh, it's very sweet and cozy and in tone, it really is very similar to a lot of the, the mysteries and shows that take place in more familiar locations. Um, so even though we'll talk about it in a minute, I don't think Pre precious is very different from Miss Marple in a lot of ways. Um, tonally, there's a lot of familiarity despite this totally different color palette, totally different setting. Um, even though many of those pieces have been changed, it, it does have a lot of the same uh, feel. And then I also just, I thought that Jill Scott was absolutely incredible um, as, as precious and Anika Noni Rose was amazing. And just the acting was just um, really, really well done. And I, I just loved it. Um, and so I was super excited to be able to convince anybody else to watch it and talk about it on, um, on the Christian feminist podcast. 
So uh, we've talked a little bit about this already in our discussion, but my first question is, um, I wanted to think a little bit about how this series is similar to or different from other mysteries that we've discussed. And the first thing I wanted to talk about when we talked about Miss Marple, which I believe is the last uh, mystery that we, the, the mystery gang, have taken on, we talked about um, ways that Miss Marple was an outsider. We talked about whether it was her, her gender or whether it was her age, but she tended to be uh, underestimated and dismissed. People didn't think she would be the person who would solve it. Um, and that, that it really felt like her, the ways in which she was different from what other detectives were, were the same reasons people tended to uh, underestimate her and also gave her the ability to to solve these mysteries in, in some part. So I'm curious, do you think that Precious is an outsider? And if so, what is it that makes her an outsider or an unlikely detective? Like what makes her not seem like what people would expect? I think this is a great question. And I've been thinking about this uh, for a while now. And I, and I am happy to to hear arguments to the to the different, but I don't think she's an outsider. I think Precious's power come and her deductive skills comes from being so in tune to her community that she's able to just pick up on subtleties, like uh, with the the. <laughs> the children who are breaking into all the shops and, and, and around her store, uh, her uh, shop, the post office where they, where they, they have their offices. Sorry. I, I lost the word for office there for a second. Um, and there's a ongoing mystery throughout the, the, the series that these various shops in this little area, um, keep getting broken into by like, I don't know, chaos demons. And she jokes at one point there's children because it's so small. And so she kind of diffuses a situation that everyone's prepared. Like the community is, Oh, you did this and you died, you know, fighting. And she comes in and just sort of chills everybody out because she has noticed that this is not like actual theft theft. This is more misadventure. And um, it's not an adult coming in here for for bad things. It's clearly somebody tiny getting in. And later, when it's revealed to be baboons, that she manages to fight off, not really, but to stand off with through giggling. Um, it's Precious's power from from like her community out on her father's farm where everyone comes out and supports her for his funeral. And, and then when she's, she moves into Habarone and people immediately just cotton to her like BK and JLB, like she's, she's very much, I think an insider in, in her culture. And that's where her skill set comes from is just knowing her people so very well. I was kind of feeling the same way. I do. I mean, there are ways that she gets, there are ways that she kind of is singled out, but mainly I would say that's in the second half of that, that one season. And that's mainly just because she, they bring in a character who's a rival male detective, who's, you know, given her grief about how a man would be more qualified purely through being a man. But I mean, before that, it's not like people keep haranguing her for being a woman trying to be, a detective. You know, you don't really get the sense that there are that many private detectives working in this capital city of Botswana, period, of any kind. Um, you know, and I, yeah, to me, she feels like, and, and I, I found myself wondering how she's so much of an insider because she's supposed to have grown up out on the farm and now she's moving to the big city. And, and in the pilot, I, I, at first I thought, oh, she's mov- she was moving to the big city for the first time. But then, you know, as the episodes go on, you realize she kind of knows everybody. Um, she's already friends with the beauty pageant promoter guy who shows up in one episode. She knows various policemen. She already knows a doctor at the hospital, right? Like she's forever meeting people and being like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen you in forever. Um, and so I kind of had to, I I was kind of trying to keep up. So over the course of the six episodes, I kind of thought, okay, you know, maybe her dad brought her to the city. 
like with him when he came to transact but like how does she know these people because they don't ex- none, none of this is explained like why you know she knows seems to know everybody despite growing up out in the bush um and part of that could just be that you know in those opening scenes of the pilot they wanted to emphasize her and I guess her dad's kind of connection to nature and the natural world. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean that that's the only place she lived. She ever lived, I suppose. Um, so I do yeah, think, I think she, there's, yeah, I'm sorry, but I think there's also the implication that she got to know Haverone through her, her ex-husband note, Makoti. Oh right? yeah. I guess I didn't think about that because presumably he didn't live on the farm with them. I never thought about that. So yeah, maybe she, she got to know um, some of these people sooner but yeah, she. I think she did. She, while she's not like thought of as perfect by everyone she meets, I do think you're right, Lori. I think she's definitely more of an an insider than an outsider. Yeah, I, I had a similar thought about the um, the connection to the city, and I there's a there's a point where she has a conversation with um, uh, a professor who um, has been. Um, has been sexually harassing um, students at a, at the school where he teaches, um, and she specifically says to him, like, when when you're disgraced, um, when you're disgraced and lose your job here, what are you going to do? Are you going to go back to the village and herd cattle um, with your family? And I, I I wondered if that part of what they were saying there was that, like, everybody in Habarone grew up in or many of them grew up in a village and like people aren't really from Habarone that they're, they're moving there. Like they're coming from the villages and moving there sort of up and away from that life. And if, so I, I, I assumed it was people that she knew kind of from village life and it's, you know, it's a guy who ended up in the police in in South Africa and a guy who, you know, is a promoter in Habarone. But, um, but you make a really good point, Laurie, because uh, the promoter guy knows her uh, ex-husband note and um, like, and is like involved in bringing him in for, for that uh, event. And so there's clearly a connection there. So it would make a lot of sense if it was through that. Um, and I guess I was trying, I think part of the difficulty with this question is I feel like the show does have kind of a weird disconnect between the opening episodes and the, the last few, once they bring in um, the, the rival private detective uh, where it does become much more targeted and hostile and actually like he's trying to physically intimidate her. Um, he's trying to bring in her abusive ex-husband so that her ex-husband can physically intimidate her into essentially not continuing to compete with him. Um, and so it's a much more dark, dark and violent um tone not like still still not game of thrones but like it, it gets darker in those because this this detective is is such a slime ball um in a way that many of the other people she's dealt with have been more ordinary slime balls not like next level slime balls um so i think there's a disconnect there but you still have the fact that she's she is describing herself as the only lady detective and like you said katie it's not clear how many detectives there are it seems like kind of a big deal when the rival detective comes to town almost like there hadn't been another one um, but she doesn't try to set herself up as the only detective agency, like the whole, it's the only, the ladies detective agency. That's why she can call it the number one. Cause there's only one. Um, so I think that's a little unclear, but certainly towards the end, there's some very explicit women can't do this job. You can't do this job. And at the beginning, I'm trying to remember the order of the, the, the clients that she has. She primarily hears from women, um, who are specifically seeking, um, solutions to the problems in their lives caused by men, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, so I wasn't sure if that was, you know, the idea of the people who need private detectives, men who need private detectives wouldn't come to her at first until she built a little bit of a reputation. Um, so I think that's hey, Alexis. Good, yeah. Really, really quick. And I've, I wanted to say this at some point in the episode tonight. And so I'll say it now. Cause I feel like it's sure. the right time. One of my, maybe, I don't know. It might've been my absolute favorite part of the pilot is when she, She's choosing an office and this guy's taking her around and she's she's turning down all these like modern office buildings and all this kind of stuff. And then she finds the like broke down old post office. But as she she before she ends up choosing it, she's standing on the front porch and she's watching. And I and I and I realized that what she's 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 deciding this is the right place because she's looking around and she's seeing all the women doing things in the neighborhood. She looks across the street and she sees the women at the hair salon and she looks across the street in the other direction and she sees the lady selling the fruit like she's spotting women doing things like all over the neighborhood. And that's how she decides this is the place for me. And I think that was my favorite part of the whole beginning of the show, because you can see that you can see that that I mean, she wants to help everybody and she says she wants to help her country. But you can tell that that's where her passion is, maybe. 
is to be a woman who's helping other women. And I just really loved it. Yeah, I love the ambiguity of the um, the apostrophe in number one ladies detective agency. Like there's a, yes, there's a yes. cool joke about. So is it a detective agency of ladies or a detective agency for ladies? And the answer is yes. Yep. I was going to say both. It's both. Well, I wanted to talk about, too, another um, another feature of Mara Motswe that is mentioned repeatedly, um, the, and that is that she is a traditionally built woman, um, and that specifically she is very full-figured, curvy. I mean, she looks amazing. She, she's actually amazing, but there's a contrast set up between uh, more slender women and, and her, and, and I couldn't really get my head around that distinction either because – it didn't always feel like it was necessarily – it didn't seem like it felt like what it feels like sometimes in the United States when we talk about someone being um, a, a, wearing a larger size of clothing um, because there were definitely people – even like male attention – like she was the object of male attention on more than one occasion in the show. So the idea was not that she was undesirable as a result of this, um, but it was commented on a lot. Um, and we saw women who didn't look like her. And I don't know how many women we saw who looked like her. We saw maybe a few – um, who were a little bit fuller figured, but I wasn't sure if you had thoughts about, you know, does, does her, does her work or does her life look different if she looks different, if she's slender, does that not really affect things at all? Does it make people feel more comfortable with her because she seems to fit the idea of someone who is cheerful and kind and traditionally built? Um, I think one of the characters even says at one point, right, that, that if you have a skinny wife, she's going to be, you know, nasty and mean and, you know, a fat wife is a cheerful wife or whatever. Um, does her, does her build impact how people view her or respond to her? That was actually something that rang really true to me because uh, when I first started watching it, uh, seeing Anthony Maniella and Richard Curtis and Weinstein's names, I kind of assumed this was just an outsider telling a story. And it wasn't until people started referring to Jill Scott's physique as a traditional build that I was like, oh, yeah, that – yeah, no, that reminds me of being in Africa because uh, while I've spent more my time in West Africa and not Southern Africa, um, I do very specifically remember being over there the first time with a friend of mine who is, well, she's a tall woman. She's like 5'11", but she's also a very, she, she looks an awful lot like Jill Scott, um, except she's white and she's blonde. And... Uh, People people were sort of attracted to her, but I do remember at one point some young men kind of bravely asking her how she got so really ready big, is what they said, and she was kind of thrown back. And it wasn't it wasn't a kind of an American why are you so so fat kind of obnoxiousness. It was a are wait do you have do you have money do you need a husband? It was kind of a pickup line, and um. I have some of some of my Liberian friends now will worry about me if my weight drops. And um, the last time I saw Georgia, uh, my weight had gone up again and she saw, oh, good, good. You look healthy again. So there is definitely a different view of of an attractive female body in, in, in a lot of African cultures. than there is an American, which I think is great um but seeing seeing precious acknowledged as um an object of desire and also a sort of traditional build that made a lot of sense to me i think too i think you can see i really like how nuanced it was because you i think you can see her react differently to to the same types of things being said to her depend on depending on who's saying them so there was a scene where she goes to visit a, a nurse um, who has potentially a clue to this really cold case that they're working on um, that, about something that happened 10 years ago. But the nurse has um, cake or something. I can't remember. Anyway, I think it's the nurse. I think this is when she visits the nurse. But the woman who's serving her cake or whatever says, I heard you're a woman who likes to eat. And seeing you, I can tell that that's true. Which, if somebody said that to you in America, you'd be like, uh, excuse me? Um, but Precious just is like, she's like, laughs delightedly at that but in different scenes you know other people like young women like jerky young women on the street who don't know her will call her fat and you can tell it hurts her 
So it is interesting. I think so much of it depends on who's talking to her. What, you know, um, in the episode where she's, she trails uh, a potentially cheating husband to the Go Go Handsome Men's uh, Nightclub, which is one of my favorite named things I've ever heard in anything. Um, it's pretty you know, great. He, it's so great. He's dancing with all these skinny girls, and he, but the husband she's there to follow sees her across the room and makes a beeline for her. But he, and you can tell that he's completely, he's he's into what she looks like. He's into her figure, but he tells her that she's like he says she's fat and fabulous and the perfect African woman, and like so she's that you know like she's not offended by that comment. She's offended by him being like kind of a weaselly guy who's, you know, down to cheat with his wife with her. But so it's just interesting. I think so much of it is who says it and, you know, even more than what is said to her. And I do think it's very interesting that apparently in this situation, you have almost two completely separate standards of beauty. Right. Because we see lots of skinny women who are considered beautiful, especially in the beauty pageant episode. But then you also have clearly people who prefer her traditional build. And she says that in the pilot, she says, I have a traditional build and many men prefer it that way. So it's just interesting how that's, that's kind of operating. Yeah. I, th- I really thought that was interesting that you had her clearly that, that there was, it wasn't like you had to be weird to find precious attractive. Like there was a, a broad swath of the culture that would, that would acknowledge her as, as being this beautiful, um, beautiful woman. And then you also had the beauty pageant where when um, Two Shots Polani is trying to set up this beauty pageant, like it's not the traditional build. Uh, although he makes a joking comment that like she she would be great if he had a mistraditional build pageant, um, which it sounds like he does a bunch of these and he very well might might have. It sounds like he may have even actually done it and tried to get her to participate. But um, but so yeah, you have those two different standards. And in some cases, like the one with uh, the guy Kremlin who, who hits on... Um, Mara Motswe when she's trying to tail him, um, who actually is, he's going after both, you know, it's not just that he's gone after, it does not seem to be that he only goes after traditionally built women. His wife is not traditionally built like, uh, like Mara Motswe, but, um, but you even have that even with one, one man responding to both sort of beauty standards um, in the same, in the same episode. Can we just pause and mention that Kremlin there is played by David Oyelowo. I can say it in my head. (laughs) Oyelowo. The guy, the guy who played Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'd forgotten. Him. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And you see him gyrating around is the skeeviest He's SOP. Really like, he is, he is just cheese poured into polyester pants. And yes. it, it was hysterical to watch. It was less funny to watch when the the wife comes back and accuses um, uh, Precious of of seducing her husband and mentions that he he tells he told his wife how could I how could I be interested in such a fat woman and clearly he's 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 turned his own. Uh, preference for her into into like something that he should be ashamed of uh and that was gross but yeah martin luther king jr in tight pants um alexis before i forget to to your question would she be perceived differently if she were slender maybe though i think the biggest reason the biggest way the series would be different if she was slender is simply that it would be easier for her to go undercover if she was if she was very true not just more slender but also shorter Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. She's she's very statuesque. And so, you know, you see her once or twice try out a disguise, but she's very visually distinctive. <laughs> and yeah. so, I mean, that's the only thing that might make it different is that she's never going to be able to, you know, blend into a crowd of small women and not stand out like, you know, and I mean, and I don't know if there's any if that if anywhere in the books, if, if it's ever commented on that, you know, if she has success going undercover or not, because she doesn't do it a ton, you know, um, in the series. But that was the only thing that did occur to me about how would things be different if she had a different body build is simply that it would probably be easier for her to go undercover. Yeah, that's well, also and- a big a big difference between um, Precious and like Miss Marple, who she gets directly echoed with. Like Jill Scott is gorgeous. Anna Kanani Rose, gorgeous. These are breathtakingly beautiful women and they're never positioned as the kind of dowdy unnoticeable sort of figure that marple is um or some of the other uh like lady detectives and british murder mysteries um 
these are beautiful women. And part of that is down to like Hollywood casting requirements. But also, I think I think it's just part of the story is that these are not women who fade into the background. They These are women who are comfortable being like seen comfortable being noticed in the world and don't make that a a detriment let me let me remove some of those negatives like find power in that and find a strength in their ability to be noticeable in the world like they take up space happily well right you know you i mean she we we know that her husband Note Makote was was you know, he's a womanizer and a successful musician uh, after a fashion, right? He who who is he going to be attracted to? Who is he going to marry? Right? It it, it wouldn't necessarily like it would be a little bit more like of uh, not not necessarily a reach, but like it would be a little more surprising if she was a wallflower who just disappeared and didn't have anything striking or, or noteworthy about her appearance. Right. He's, he is a big wig in these circles. It seems to be. Um, and so it makes sense that, that he would then be attracted to someone who, who was attractive, who had that kind of magnetism and charisma. Um, even if she didn't then have sort of the confidence and power that she ends up with in, in the series. Um, Katie, to your point about her doing, um, following people and going in disguise and all that. I do want to talk about whether she has specialized knowledge or skills. We've talked a little bit about this from the sort of the connectedness of she knows somebody knows everybody, but what, um, you know, especially coming off of our Miss Marple discussion where she knows all the details of how like a household is run and knows all of the village gossip and has lived a long time and knows how people are. I feel like she had a lot of specialized knowledge where something would mean something different to her than it meant to the police because she was an older woman and had lived the life she had lived. Do you feel like Precious has specialized knowledge or skills? Um, and do those relate to any of the things we've been talking to so far? Well, we know she can shoot because That's true. Um, in whichever episode where they end up um, finding the man's watch in the crocodile, she shoots the crocodile and she says her daddy taught her how to shoot because he thinks you know, anything you teach a son, you should teach a daughter. So that's interesting. Um, you know, and Anne is unafraid to use any some kind of hand weapon because she then cuts open this crocodile. I, I took off my headphones and I said to David something like, well, I've never seen that on a TV, a mystery series before, like <laughs> on like a cozy mystery series before somebody cutting open a crocodile's belly. Um, so there's I mean, she's you know, she's kind of that's like a very specific skill. Um I think she seems, and this is, maybe this is too simplistic, but she also seems to be really, really familiar with the terrain, the roads. You know, she's out driving herself places all the time. She knows how to get everywhere. We never see her asking for directions. She's very attached to her vehicle. There's, they have like a, there's like a bond, right? This vehicle that she was given by her dad. Like, um, she doesn't want to get rid of it. You know, um, JLB's like, don't you think you want something more modern? And she doesn't. So there's, she's got this interesting kind of, um, not even knowledge of how to fix it because she can't fix it herself, but she has this comfort with her automobile and with driving and with being out in the bush driving alone at night and you know she has this kind of um this confidence with with things like that but i do think that um a lot of her a lot of her detective skill is maybe slightly less down to specialized knowledge and more to do with with her powers of observation which is kind of how it's cast at the beginning of the pilot is that her dad taught her to be a very careful observer and a careful listener and in the episode so with the the cheating wife, I think there's only one in the episode with with the one cheating wife. She's the one who notices that like the little boy in the picture doesn't have his dad's nose, right? He's got the nose of the affair partner, like just stuff like that. So I think it's it's more to do the detective side of it. I think is more to do with powers of observation and maybe with knowing lots of people than it does to do with any sort of specialized knowledge about specific systems, like Miss Marple's knowledge of domestic life and servant, you know, mores and stuff like that. Yeah, I agree. She's definitely got a little bit of that um, Sherlock Holmes, I see everything, but also a little bit of the Sherlock Holmes, I didn't pay attention to that, uh, because one of the reasons her car is always breaking down is because she didn't know you 
he put, you, you have to take the emergency brake off. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. I'm talking about how she knows about how to do her car. I forgot about that part, Lori, where he's like, do you take the handbrake (laughs) off? Oh my gosh, I was dying. Because it doesn't fit with everything else we see about her, that she would not know how to do that. Um, Yeah, it's it's like like, uh, Holmes forgetting somebody's name because, or or that something in the... uh, in astronomy because he needed a brain cell to pay attention to, I don't know, an anagram or something. It, she is a very interesting mix of, of Marple um, and, and Holmes and, you know, Poirot, cause she's got her picadillos. It's like, she is very particular about her pastries. And the tea <laughs> and having tea at all times. At and, all times. Yes. One of the things I thought was interesting about that, it's I, I, I think I agree with you, Laurie, because when I was coming, especially coming off of like having read a lot of Agatha Christie and um, with Marple and Poirot and, and Lord Peter and, and some of the other ones that I read, um, she is not a sit and puzzle it out like I have solved it in my brain detective. Like she's a run and find out detective. Um, and sometimes she gets credit for solving a mystery when it, it's like, so she solves the mystery of the, the break-ins, right? Because she happens to be working late at the office and literally sees with her own eyeballs, the monkeys breaking in. Um, so I don't, I don't give her a ton of, like, it's great that she's there and she can, you know, rub it in the other detective's face that he didn't solve it. But like, also it's like she solved it in the sense of like puzzling out and figuring out oh, who would steal three shoes and who would steal the colored chalk and not the white chalk. It must be a monkey. So it's a little different because she's not most of the time not sitting and puzzling out. Here's all the information. She's like, if you think I remember with Poirot, like he always is, he he would always degrade that. He'd be like, oh, all you people running around getting like facts and stuff. That's just dumb, you know, police work. I just need to sit here and use my little gray cells. Right? That's not how she operates. She's get in the car and go find out. And she's she has still there's still some skill involved. Like she she's able to craft traps or craft um, methods to sort of flush someone out and get the information that she needs, whether it's, you know, pretending that she has a statement from uh, a sexual harassment victim or pretending that, that in, um, someone that needs a blood transfusion, um, which that's, that's my favorite my, part. That's the guy who's not the daddy. Oh my God. Yeah. When she tells him that they're only going to need about half of his blood for this blood transfusion in order to encourage him to admit that he is not, in fact, the father of this woman. Um, so she, she, there's, it's not that there's no genius there, but a lot of the time it's not. And she ends up getting bested by a teenage girl um, when she's trying to follow a teenage girl to find out who the teenage girl's boyfriend is. Like she ends up getting fooled by by her. So I, I kept kind of going back and forth to like how how smart is she supposed to be, and how much is it sort of just she's willing to go and look. And that's usually all it takes is following the person, following the uh, the dentist who is actually twins or following the person who's having an affair um, and and trying to figure out how much of it required that sort of special level of of, of intelligence and how much how much it is just that she's the one who's willing to go and do it. Um, and so I, I kept kind of going back and forth because some of them are really, really ingenious ways of solving a crime and some of them really do seem like they're they're just luck um but a lot of it does go back to her her dad and the way that he educated her and the skills that that he uh that he gave her as well which i'll um mention again later but um well we are coming up on our time so i want to go ahead and talk a little bit about now we talked about precious uh what the show has to say about gender more broadly uh specifically what are men and women like uh in this world I I think that one of the reasons that you uh, that she seems so attached to JLB, I think, is because he's one of the few kind of good men you meet in the series. Sadly, um, I mean, she has many great memories of her dad, who seems to have been a wonderful person, but he's gone. And BK, the guy who runs the hair salon across the street, is a great guy. But, you know, most of the other men that you meet in, you know, in the show are either the men who were doing the terrible things in their cases that they're pursuing or men who aren't terrible villains, but who aren't who aren't super great or super respectful either. Like Mr. Patil, the teenage girl's dad, who seems to be friends with her and friends with other people in the area, but who also is like, no, yeah, I'm going to arrange my daughter's marriage. I'm not giving her any choice. That's what we do. And we're moving on. Like, you know, so there's, there's a lot of um, tons of men to not like in the series and a lot of talk about 
how this is just how men are. Like in the in the episode with the cheating wife, uh, Mama Kutsi's shocked. She's like, how could she do that? How could she cheat? And uh, Mama Motsway says something like, well, for every don't forget that for every cheating wife in our country, there's like 500 cheating husbands. And it's just this is just presented as fact. Like, and, and, you know, so it is, it's a really, it's a really different landscape gender wise than any kind of golden age detective story where you do often get cheating spouses, but it's not, it's, it's more even gender wise, I suppose. And we do see literal polygamy operating, right? When she, she goes out to solve the, what we would call a country house mystery, right? For the weekend or whatever. Um, and the old dad who's still alive has two wives and because his, his son says he's, he's traditional, um, and so he, you know, he has two wives. Um, and so it is the men don't they don't come through well in the series, which maybe makes the, the men who are depicted as good shine all the brighter, I suppose. Yeah, this this show, um, I th- I think a lot of it kind of boils down to a aside from the, the depth of character that we get with Precious herself, a lot of the other characters are caricatures. Um, most of the clients that we meet, we, we don't, they don't have inner lives. They are poured into shiny uh, polyester pants when they go to the go-go bar, you know, that, or, or they, they're a caricature. And it's very kind of simple the 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 worldview of of gender as as the show goes on though and and I get the sense that if there were a second season it would probably start to expand a little bit more um and i would i would really be curious to compare that sense of the ancillary the tertiary characters as as caricatures with the the novels themselves to see in a in a in a genre in a format um, medium that's what I was looking for in a medium where interiority is the name of the game do we get a rounder sense of people um, than the kind of black and white very few shades of gray uh, that we get in the series do you feel like there is more uh, more shallowness in the portrayal of those characters, like the clients, than you get in, say, a Marple story or a Poirot story. No, I think the thing the thing about the the shallowness that stands out is it's so just so heavily gendered. Um, I think that's that's a trope okay. of of this this genre of of the murder mystery, specifically the cozy murder mystery. Because we don't want gritty realism. Um, we want tea cozies and knitting and, and and to feel better about the world at the end of it. And so caricatures and stereotypes are the, are the name of the game because they're, they're easy. But they feel more heavily gendered in this series, mm-hmm. at least to me. No, that, I think that makes sense. I, I kept thinking as I was watching... Like I, I felt, especially at the at the, the beginning few episodes, and it, it starts really with the with that first client that she has, uh, Happy But Petsy, who is is very happy. She's got a job. She's all all of these things, and then her life. What what makes her life unhappy is this father supposedly who has come back in her life, for whom she now does everything and supports him and basically waits on him hand and foot while he does not work and she does have a job, and and that just sort of got me started thinking. Are, are the women in this show better off without men? Like, is it one of those things where, like, the men are almost like a necessary evil? The men are constantly sort of coming after and wanting the women, and the women kind of have to have the men because that's life. But, like, if if for some reason someone could craft an existence without men in them, that that person would necessarily have a better existence. And I, I kind of feel like that is the story that we're getting, that these women – they can do for themselves. They're better off. Like it's it's that you know 
they need him like a fish needs a bicycle kind of kind of a vibe um, and kind of giving me a little bit of a Genesis three vibe too of that. Like, well, we, we, you know, we love them and we care for them because that's just our curse is that we care for them. And then as a result, we are subjected to the abuse of infidelity and the abuse of actual abuse and all these other things. Um, because so many of the husbands are so unimpressive and, uh, and really I was trying to think if we saw, like we have some good, male characters that are admirable honorable people but i don't i couldn't remember if we saw a a healthy marriage ever because even her even precious's dad we don't ever hear about her mom in the show and i don't remember from the books what happened if she had just died young or something but but so even with her dad that she had this great daddy she doesn't ever talk about seeing a healthy marriage and certainly didn't have a healthy marriage herself um to note so that that idea of an actual mutually satisfying and respectful relationship, I don't know that I saw one. Did you know, give me an idea, like no. just now. Uh, okay, no, there isn't. But we only see so much of this world through Precious, and we meet Precious when she's at her lowest. She's the one reliable man in her life has died, and we see in like. In the, the pilot, in that feature length, note comes back to the to the funeral, and it's a source of trauma for her. So when she's moving out into the world, she she holds all men at at a at a, a, a remove in JLB. Like he's smitten immediately, and she's no no holds him back, holds him back, even though he's perfect for her, and we know he's perfect for her, and she knows he's perfect for her. She holds him back, hold like pushes him back. And it's as she starts to confront her trauma with note and allow herself to think outside of that experience that she finally opens herself up to JLB. And I think I'm going to say now definitively having a thought in the last two minutes that it's focalizing through her trauma. And as she's healing, perhaps there would be more reliable men. There would be better people because she's finally open to the idea that she can have a good man in her life. I think that's really interesting, Laurie. I, cause I kind of interpret it a little bit differently, but, but I think like when she finally says, yes, I will, will marry you. I it's right after the, this, you know, to me, very over the top Don John for much ado about nothing style villain. Who is this other detective? Um, he he like, doesn't fit with the rest of the tone of the series. I don't think. No, I, when he came in, I was like, what is happening? This guy is so over the top evil. He feels fake. Um, but when he tries to run her off the road, like he physically threatens her safety and, and she's been missing JLB anyway. Cause he's out of town. He's like gone fishing, whatever. So she just starts to go, Go, but what? So at that point, that's when she and I do think you're right, Lori. That maybe working through the trauma is helping her realize that she does want to make a commitment to him. But, but I also think in that moment when she seems to be in the most danger, to me it felt like she is kind of saying to herself, like I, I I'm gonna, I need to find the one man who I actually feel safe with in the entire world. Like I mean that you know she's. It almost seems like a a realization that I I don't need to keep holding at a distance you know, the one man who actually feels like a safe man. Um, and you're right, Alexis. I don't I don't recall another positive depiction of marriage, though, to be fair, if you are a private detective, do you see that happy marriages? Not usually. Um, I mean, some of that is just going to be selection bias because the people who come to the private detective are people who are probably having some problems, you know. Um, but it's true. It is interesting that you don't see any like there's no like married shopkeepers in the neighborhood. Right. There's no like husband and wife who run a little restaurant down the street or something. Everybody appears to be either a single like I mean, even even Mr. Patil, like his wife must be dead, but nobody ever explains where she is. Right. He appears to be a single dad to multiple children and he clearly he's parenting his teenage daughter alone because he's freaking out and doesn't know what to do with her but there's no explanation like right about if he's if he's got a wife if he had a you know or whatever i mean you know he seems to act like his marriage was arranged too um so it is it is interesting and maybe a little it is a little sad that you don't really get a picture of of a healthy marriage um i think one of the most i was i've been thinking about something since you said it about the idea um laurie of the tertiary characters being kind of caricatures and I, I think I think that's true. But I think one reason more even on this series than a lot of other detective series 
maybe for that is because I think a lot of those people in those situations, they're, they might be simplistic characters, but her responses and the things that she decides to do are ethically incredibly complicated and morally very complicated. And that was, to me, one of the most interesting things about the series, because in a lot of kind of like in a kind of golden age, you know, Poirot tale, you know, at the end, Poirot's like, I reveal all, you know, you're the villain. And then scene, right? Like, or, you know, people get turned over to the police, right? You know, and I think at least in, uh, there's a, in, there's a definite strain in American and British detective stories of that it's a bad idea to try to take justice into your own hands to tr- to punish right or to whatever where precious almost goes complete full tilt in the opposite direction and we pretty much never see her hand anyone over to the police right she's always kind of trying to meet out her version of justice and it's not like she's going to go hurt somebody because they hurt somebody right it's not an eye for an eye thing but you know how often in the in the stories that you see in the pilot and then later on does she end up telling a, a, a bad person, look, I won't report you if you give this 100,000 bula to the orphanage, right? Like, I'll, I won't get your family into a scandal, but you're going to have to do something good for somebody else. Like, so she has this very ethically complicated idea of what should you do if you've discovered somebody's doing wrong? How should we react to the results of our investigations? She's never going to just turn it over to the cops and be like, y'all handle this now and forget about the emotional fallout. And I think you, you see that the most in the episode with the cheating wife where they have a whole lengthy discussion of, should we even tell this husband the whole truth of what we found out because of what it will do to this family? And that was one of the most interesting parts to me. So I do think that I was forgiving some of the simplistic characterization in those tertiary characters because the, the results of those investigations and the discussion among the detectives um, as to what to do with that information was so complicated. I think that's a good point. And if we had more time, I would want to talk about what, what Precious's view is of people. Like, are they good, basically good um, and only bad because of things that happened to them? Because there's a lot of that, right? Like this person went down a bad path, but it's because of X, Y, or Z. Um, you know, the guy who is faking his um, injury, he's trying to take care of his niece, uh, his niece and nephew or whoever it is who, who have been orphaned. Like people have these reasons because people are complicated. Uh, but you also have, like like you said, the, the detective, the competing detective who seems maybe a little bit less complicated, at least how he's portrayed. And you have uh, Charlie Gozzo in that first, in the, in the pilot who is uh, buying the bad medicine um witchcraft with like children's bones in it and she's like he's the one guy who she's like calling the police as soon as he gets across um in uh uh wherever he's like south africa or somewhere she she turns him in um, and i think the car thief too because there's the the car thief um she says she doesn't or not the car thief the dentist the dentist she doesn't want the dentist to be uh outed um the fake dentist in botswana because she doesn't want people to be scared of going to the dentist but then they do get him in trouble when he goes across the border so that it's just not in Botswana. So she does it. So, so I'd be interested to sort of delve in more of like, who are the people who like, you know, really we need, we need justice and intervention. Um, and who are the people who, you know, circumstances and life and nuance and grace and all of those things. But we are coming up on our time. Um, so uh, any last comments before we move into passing on? All right. I don't think so. I'm good. Okay. All right. So with that, we're going to go ahead and move on to our final segment, which is passing on. Uh, So, Katie, do you have a recommendation for us? I do. Um, I'm going to recommend a very new show um, on BritBox, which is a channel you can get through Amazon and I'm sure through other um, streaming services. Um, It's called Beyond Paradise. It is a spinoff series from the very long running and enormously popular British series Death in Paradise which is a long-running murder mystery series um, from the UK. And this series is a spinoff because uh, that the, the parent series had a series of different detective inspectors coming from the UK and working in the Caribbean um, on a fictional island. And one of those, D.I. Humphrey Goodman, my favorite one, um, was hugely popular, but he, he left the show after a couple of years because apparently it was too hard for the actor to be living that far from his family while filming. Completely understandable. Well, so Chris Marshall, the actor now, um, they've written him a whole spinoff as playing the same character, but now working in the UK. 
Um, and so it's, for me, a very familiar character. But I don't think you have to have seen the parent series to appreciate this show. It just started airing. The first episode started airing on BritBox, I think, February 23rd. Um, um, they're releasing one episode a week. Um, and there will be six episodes because that's generally how they do it. Six one hour episodes in this first season. I really like it because in some ways it reminds me of number one ladies detective agency in the sense that much more than the original parent series, this series beyond paradise, um, pays a lot more attention to the detectives personal relationships. It's not completely episodic, um, in this case, he's he's living back in the UK. He's not in the Caribbean. And he and his fiance have moved to her small seaside town where she grew up, which is supposed to be in Devon. They actually film, I think, in Cornwall. Um, beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> Everything's beautiful. Um, but so there's a very strong through line of their relationship and of family relationships. Um, and unlike Death in Paradise, so far we're four episodes in and there has been no murders. The crimes are different, too. Um the crimes feel more like a um, – in that way, it makes me think of um, Number One Ladies Detective Agency, too, because we've had – there's been a theft of a painting. There's been an entire family that apparently disappears in the night, right? Um, and so the crimes are feel like lower stakes because there are dead bodies dropping all over the place. So I was thinking about that series this week as I was watching Number One Ladies because they kind of it, – it, again – British seaside town, totally different setting, but there's a similar feel of that that emphasis on personal relationships, not just the mystery at hand. And then also um, that same kind of um, slightly lighter feeling of um, what types of crimes are being discussed and things like that. So if you definitely if you're a Death in Paradise fan, you should check it out. But even if you never watch this series. I think Beyond Paradise is definitely worth a look. Um, it's a lot of fun. And if there are any Dairy Girls fans listening, because I know we have them who are listeners, um, the guy from Dairy Girls who plays the English cousin is also on Beyond Paradise. He plays the uh, the young, not terribly bright police officer in their little uh, seaside town, and he's very cute. So it's a lot of fun. James is my favorite Dairy Girl. Well, you should you should watch. He's adorable, and he's he gets cuter by the week on that show. Bless his heart. He <laughs> he has to ride his bicycle everywhere because he doesn't have a patrol car, so it's fun. It's cute. How about you, Laurie? Um, uh, my selection is a movie that I watched um in the Bishop's Cold Room in Monrovia in two thousand and five. No, two thousand and nine. Um, it is from Nigeria, where they have a pretty substantial film industry, Nollywood. It is called The President Must Not Die, and it's sort of an espionage action thriller about the all-woman security team who have to protect the president against assassination attempts, and it is pure entertainment. The The transfer on YouTube that we're linking to is not the best, um, but uh, uh, it's amazing, and I, just, I think more people need to watch this movie. I cannot recreate my first experience with it, which I think is part of the reason I love it so much, but if you put a really powerful air conditioner in an overheated room and um, eat a lot of mango while watching it, you can come kind of close. But the president must not die. Fantastic. Thank you, Laurie. And that uh, that reminds me, for any of our listeners who are, are looking to watch the Precious Ramotswe um, number one ladies detective agency show, um, it is still uh, available through HBO. I was able to do like a free one week trial through Amazon Prime. And because it's just a pilot and the six episodes, you, you can get through it in a week fairly straightforwardly. And then there's a not I think not maybe as good quality version that is still also on YouTube. Um, and also you can sometimes get it through your interlibrary loan uh, from your public library if people, you know, still have actual CDs and or, uh, DVDs and DVD players uh, like us old folks. Um 
So my recommendation, I, I do two because I can never do. Well, I'm, I'm doing two because one of them is really hard to find. Uh, so the, the one recommendation is a, a novel called The Unknown Weapon by Andrew Forrester Jr. I read it because it's included in a book called Three Victorian Detective Novels. And I think this particular novel, I want to say it was written in 1864. And the, the blurb on the back says it may very well be the first detective novel. So Edgar Allan Poe spawns the genre, but he, his is short stories. So you have a lot of short stories around this time. This is possibly the first novel, and it features a female police detective. Um, so that's fun, right? It's a Victorian female police detective mystery um, and a decent mystery at that. So um, if you can track that down, um, we'll have a link to the the three Victorian detective novels edition. Um, I think it's only available used, um, and but you can try to pick that up. Easier to access. Um, Andrew McCall Smith has also, or, uh, sorry, Andrew, Alexander McCall Smith has also written a series called Precious Remote Sway Mysteries for Young Readers that is an early reader, early chapter book series of Precious as a child solving mysteries around her village school and with her village friends. And they're sweet and they're delightful and they're a great opportunity to have your kids read something if, the, if you're wanting to branch out from maybe um, Encyclopedia Brown or something like that. Um, you can read about Precious solving uh, the mystery of who's stealing people's cakes, um, you know, out of the schoolroom uh, during recess or, or whatever. Uh, so those there's, I think, like three or four of them, maybe five um, that are more more recent, more recently published. So easier to get from the library or elsewhere. Um, but um, they're super fun. We've we've read them with the kids and uh, I recommend them. So with that, uh, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle, at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Laurie Norris and Katie Grubbs, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune in next time. Until then, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. <laughs>